Hey there, Freedom Fighters. I've been waiting for years, literally years, to do this interview. I've known this inside information. Jordan has told me this. And because it had to do with Shopify, a major online e-commerce brand, and a company that a lot of us love, he rightfully said, hey, I, I just can't do this. I think one time, Jordan, you pulled out at the last minute, I right? I did. That's right. You did the pre-interview. It was on the calendar. and then, uh, All right, let me introduce you. Jordan Gall ha has been on the podcast before. He has been in e-commerce for many years through many different companies. Um, I interviewed him last when he created Carthook, which was essentially a checkout optimization platform. It was all about getting somebody to it has a store to get more sales from the store. I think initially it was about cart abandonment. Somebody adds stuff to the store, to the, to the shopping cart, then they disappear. And then it eventually became, well, why don't we just make the shopping cart so good that people don't disappear? And then the thing took off. All good, except that he integrated with Shopify and Shopify loved their shopping cart. I mean, to the point where for years I would see a beautiful looking store. I go, I don't even know who built it, but I, I like it. And then I would go to check out and I see the Shopify URL, the domain in the URL. And I go, so beautiful. And they still insist on using the Shopify URL. I didn't realize how married Shopify was to it and how insistent they were that people use it their way. Anyway, Jordan uh, did well, but he tried to change their shopping cart experience, which they didn't like. He did a whole bunch of business doing it. And then he said, you know what? I got to move on from this. And then he created Rally. Rally is, is a checkout solution for e-commerce brands. I invested in it, not because I even understood what he meant when he said, this is for headless checkout. I go, what the hell is headless? I don't even know. But because I saw this guy battle for years and just triumph. And I said, I got to be on board and I want to be inside. And I am, and I'm proud to do it. And I could say that we're going to find out all the inside information that I wasn't allowed to share for a long time. Thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first, if you're hiring developers, I want you to go and check out lemon.io slash Mixergy. You'll get a great price, phenomenal developers. And second, I'm going to tell you later about these new types of organizations, decentralized autonomous organizations, and why you should check out Origami, which created some of the biggest ones. But first, Jordan... How big did the revenue get which, with uh, your uh, Shopify e-commerce solution, Shopify checkout process? So at its peak, uh, Carthook got to 6 million ARR and very profitable, maybe 50% profit. So you were banking 3 million a year from this business that you were like a Shopify outlaw on? Yes, we were on the, the Shopify black market off the app store Word of mouth uh, couldn't be on the inside. I'm excited to kind of get into it. I can already feel myself like experiencing the last few years, like emotionally, mm -hmm. as I think through the memories. Uh, I'm really happy to be back on here. Thank you very much for having me on, for investing in Rally, for being a good friend along the way. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. You talked about the $6 million in revenue, very profitable Tell me about any health issues or family issues as a result of all the pain of dealing with that. And then we'll get into the story of how you got there and what's going on with Rally. So I, I regularly think of our friend Elon Musk's quote on, on entrepreneurship, right? Staring into the abyss while chewing glass. And eventually you stop staring, but the chewing glass never ends. I, I think that's very fitting. That's like a few sentences to encapsulate the experience at least for the most part, for most people. You know, some people get lucky and everything unfolds in front of them and mm -hmm. it's easy. And even those stories have drama and difficulty inside of them. Uh, my story was, you, you mentioned the word battle in the intro. It has been a battle. I did not set out, I mean, I don't, I don't know about most people, I set out to have a nice easy time and make money. <laughs> that was my goal. Uh, that did not happen. And I guess it it happened in unexpected ways. You know, I I guess to be honest with you, you're very fit. You're a good-looking guy. I was watching your weight for years. I said, he's going to get fat. There's no <laughs> way that he's dealing with this without somehow taking it out on his body. And you didn't. It looks like you did okay. No major health issues? No, no health issues. Uh, not physical. Uh I, I never associated myself with the word anxiety before, ever in my life. Uh, but over the last few years, that that has come up. So the the internal battle, just that fire raging for that long, 
it's, you know, what really helped me is at some point I turned to therapy and that has been incredible. It happened right around the time my co-founder and I uh, at Cardhook split. Okay, wait, wait, let's go back. Let's go yeah, back. Okay. We, we let's got, let's start from the beginning. I love that you just introduced that because you're going to talk about the difficulty there. Cardhook started 2013 with the idea of doing what? Let's go through the whole story. Easy, right? Think about my mindset here back in the day. I'm like, how do I get 10K in recurring revenue with a software product? That's basically my only goal. My previous career was like investment banking, family business, and real estate stuff. Eventually, my family business, we were like, we love each other more than we care about business and money. So let's go our separate ways. And what that meant for me is going toward the internet. That was my passion for a long time. And so I got into e-commerce because my brother started an e-commerce company. That's what we talked about in the last Mixergy interview. We figured out how to sell things online. And then we sold that off. It was okay. It was nothing major, a few hundred K. And then I started software for e-commerce merchants. And the first idea was just looking at our, literally our credit card statements as an e-commerce merchant and looking at what we spent money on every month. And we identified that one app that we spent money on every month was a cart abandonment app. And it was an absolute terrible piece of software. We paid a hundred bucks a month for it and we would never cancel it because it gave us 20, 30 X ROI every single month. So I was going simple. Let me rebuild a better version of that because I want to be in, in their shoes. I, I want that, but with a better product, I'll be in good shape. So Cardhook started as a card abandonment app that sent emails to people who started their checkout but didn't complete it. Simple okay. Who built it? So a friend of mine built it. I, I don't code. I'm not technical, but I had, I had a lot of knowledge from e-commerce. And my first challenge was finding a developer or a technical co-founder. I, I assume that is a common theme with people who are not technical. So it always requires a little bit of luck. I was in San Francisco for three months with my wife and our kid and two dogs in Noe Valley. We were checking the place out to see if we wanted to move there. We were on like this tour of a different city every month or two. We ended up in Portland, but that's a different story. While in San Francisco, I bump into a family friend at the laundromat. And this is like what I thought of as like, this is like the whiz kid younger brother. I knew his older brother and we start having lunch together. And eventually I convince him to build the first version of Cardhook. Yep. I give him a piece of the company. And, and then I start selling it and that's it. Okay. The, the first year I grind it out kind of part-time, get it to like two or 3000 bucks a month in recurring revenue. How'd you get your first customers? <sighs> Do you remember Dane Maxwell and the foundation? Very much. Right. Yes. Memorable, was... memorable set of interviews. Absolutely. Uh -huh. I, I use a lot of his techniques and I combined it with a lot of the like appropriate person, direct cold email. I forget that also an interview of yours. I still use that. That was the email that you sent to someone to say, who's the appropriate person for me to talk to about this thing? The mm -hmm. person who's above the person you're trying to reach forwards it to the person you're trying to reach, and then they're more likely to open it. It doesn't work as well as it did before, but nope. it's still an effective mechanism. No, right. Outbound tactics always have to move around with the times, but back then yep. that worked. And what I did was I built an outsourced system where I went to built with and downloaded lists of e-commerce companies that were on platforms that we integrated with. It started off with Volusion and then WooCommerce and then Magento and so on. And we'll get to the Shopify integration in a bit. That is what leads into the other product. And I would hand that off to a VA for like six bucks an hour and they would qualify. So they'd go to the site, make sure it's in English, make sure they're selling physical products as their primary business. And then the next, the next VA would find the contact info and then load it up into Sales Loft at the time. And then emails would go out. And all I knew is I would then get uh, appointments on my calendar to do demos. So I had like this beautiful system and everything I did at Cardhook was in that vein because I was bootstrapped and I basically just took a few bucks of my own and said, all right, wh what can I do with, you know, 50,000 bucks to like get this thing underway and get it to a decent, you know, revenue level. Okay. And then what'd you do to get it? How big did it get, I guess, before you moved on to the next part of the business, which is the the shopping cart? Right. So this was really critical for us. We got it to about 10,000 bucks a month in revenue. It took, it took maybe 18 months, maybe two years. 
I think we were at about 5,000 bucks a month in revenue and I went to New York to see friends and family. So I was on the road and we went back for the holidays. While there, I had, I hung out with my friends from college. I went to Michigan. All my friends went into finance. They all made a lot more money than we did, <laughs> than I did. <laughs> I, I went to investment banking for one year and ran away screaming. So that was just not the right path for me. In my, in my hangouts, in my lunches and, and, and getting together with my friends, I told them about this software company that I built. And a few of them, you know what, you know what it was? I got an acquisition offer from another guest of yours, Adi Pinar. Ah, I yes. know him well. I was in his house. Yes. yes. In South Africa. Gr great guy. Great entrepreneur. Uh, mm -hmm. He emailed me at some point and said, hey, do you want to join forces? I'm starting this thing. Do you, you know, can I acquire Carthook? Come join me. We'll work together. What was the thing at the time? This was WooCommerce? No, I think it was the new one. Maybe Convezio. I think what turned into okay. Convezio. Maybe it's sorry Convergio, for the name. I think. It um, was like the conversion software. Analytics tracking. I'm, yeah. Uh, yes. uh, maybe it turned into email messaging. Yes. It so, did. so. I took that and not on purpose, but parlayed that into investment interest in the company. So I was having lunch with a friend and I told him, hey, I got this acquisition offer. And then of course that plants in his head like, yo, it's too early. Like you should just raise some money. I would give you 25 grand. And I kind of like, oh, that's cool. I appreciate that. And kind of just put that aside. And then I brought it up to another, another few friends. And by the end of the trip to New York, I had like 75K committed of friends. And I was like, ooh, wow, okay. I, I think maybe I can do something here. Okay. And now I'm and not technical. I'm starting a software company and it's, it's decision time. Do I keep doing this part-time or am I going all in on this and getting serious? And I thought if I'm going to do that, I need to find a technical co-founder. And very fortunately, I found, uh, I found one in, in, in Ben. And he joined, he brought a few friends and they put in money. My friends and family put in some money and we raised 275,000 bucks and we were underway. All right. And so then at that point, did you start to shift towards a shopping cart or did you stay with abandonment, with cart abandonment? Okay. So here's what happened. We focused on cart abandonment for, I, th I think realistically it's about a year. We got it to about 10,000 bucks a month. And then we did a, an integration deal with... Cratejoy. Do you remember Cratejoy? Austin Company. Yes. Yeah, I, I think I even interviewed the founder. They would send you this crate of stuff or send it to your friends that you sent a gift to, I think. No, no. Maybe they started that way, but it turned into an e-commerce platform specifically for recurring revenue. Basically, specifically for subscription boxes and fruit of the okay. month and coffee of the I month. I had that wrong. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's actually related to some later stuff with Recharge and Shopify, but that's that's for a bit later. So we did a deal with them. They were going through hypergrowth. And this experience taught me a lot. So I emailed the founder and I said, hey, we've got a few merchants on Cratejoy. They're asking us for cart abandonment services. And the guy said, we're, we're, we're dying. We keep getting requests like that, but we have no time. We're in hypergrowth. And can you just build it for our platform? And we'll just put you into our admin so we can just send everyone there. And I said, absolutely, of course. So we built it in such a way that they put us inside their admin and all you had to do was just, you know, copy paste your user ID from Carthook and then boom, you had Carthook card abandonment. Wow. Okay. Yep. That and is a killer deal. Yeah. It was a killer deal. Killer deal. And what that did is that put our growth on autopilot. So we basically did no marketing and no work between 10K and 20K a month because it was just Cratejoy going through hypergrowth and a certain percentage of their merchants wanted card abandonment and they would just sign up with us and we would grow. That's a killer deal. Were you able to get other deals like that? Not, there aren't a lot of opportunities for that. No, there aren't. No. I, I use that as a model even today. And the way I think about integrations with partners, and this is what I explained to my team also, is you reach for the ideal. What is the ideal? The ideal is literally getting built into their admin that everyone sees it and, and it's the only option and you can start right away from inside the partner's admin. That is the ideal. Right below that is them doing a case study and writing a blog post. Right below that is just an email. Right below that is us writing a blog post. So it's like this hierarchy of what can you shoot for as an ideal partnership and then how far down do you have to come to compromise with reality? And then you keep aiming for the ideal over time. Okay. All right. Okay. That's a great model. It was, it, was, it was great. And what that did is it allowed us to take what seemed like a very, very big risk, which is to build 
a second product when you have a four-person team and like $110,000 in the bank. Okay, so why would we build another product? <laughs> what happened was we kept getting inbound from Shopify merchants saying, we want card abandonment. Does this work for Shopify? Can you do an integration? And we kept saying no because Shopify had a quirk. Back then, even to this day, Shopify is very, very strict around their checkout. Back then, like you mentioned, it was even on Shopify's domain. It wasn't even on the store's domain. And you couldn't put any JavaScript on the page. And our whole thing as Cardhook Card Abandonment was that we had this piece of JavaScript that would grab the email address as soon as it was typed in the field. It didn't require some type of a, what's it called? It happens on the blur event as opposed to some type of a page refresh or a page action. And that was our claim to fame because that was usually reserved for the much more expensive versions of card abandonment and we were bringing it down market. So why would we integrate with Shopify and have our magic taken away and then have to go compete with everyone else who's looking at their API that you could just make a $9 a month app, you know, in a weekend. So I didn't want to put us in that position. So we kept saying, no, 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 no. Wait, wait, you, well, why wouldn't you want to do it? Someone else could do it too. You're saying, but I, I thought it was a, a technical restriction that they wouldn't allow you That's to right. put your, they wouldn't allow you to put your script on the Shopify platform. And so every time someone from Shopify, who had a Shopify store contacted you and said, I want to do card abandonment, I thought you had to say, we couldn't do it. We just don't, they won't allow us. No. So that's the checkout product in, in, in just a sec. The card abandonment, you could, but we basically had to neuter our most important feature and become just a generic card abandonment app that looked at their API and we had basically had no special sauce, right? Okay. Everyone gets the same little design space in the API and everyone has the same exact features. And then you're competing on things like price and being in like the cool kid Twitter club, which okay. I didn't, I didn't think that was an advantageous place to be okay. on WooCommerce, on Magento, on Volusion on all these other platforms, we could do exactly what we wanted and give the experience to our merchants that we wanted. All right. I but don't we just need to be slow no. here, but I want to make sure that I understand how it worked. It was someone would enter their email address on the Shopify store. The checkout then page. They, on the checkout page, which was hosted on their domain or on Shopify's domain? On Shopify's domain. On Shopify. You were still able to capture that email address. And then if they didn't complete the purchase within a certain amount of time, you could go back and say, you didn't complete this purchase. Here's an offer to encourage you to buy. Correct. You trigger saying, a set of emails. You're saying anyone was able to do that on Shopify in a way that Shopify opened it up. And you said, I don't want to be anyone. What did you want to do that was different from that? We wanted to put our JavaScript on the checkout page that enabled our most important feature, which was the ability to capture the email as soon as it was typed in the field. Everyone see, else you want you had them to, to hit go, submit. Yes, that's right. You have to go between page one and page two. And in God. that event of clicking to page two, that's when it gets written to the API and that's when everyone else can grab it. And that it. is, you know, that's not as advantageous. If you think about a checkout, let's say on Volusion or on Magento back then, and it was one page, like it's pointless. There is no page refresh. So that's why we built it that way. So we kept saying no. Eventually what happened... <laughs> I don't know how, how detailed or honest to be on this. I'm high as fuck. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm in my house. Now, I'm late at night. This is my, one of my favorite things, right? A little edible. And then you, 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 you start to think differently. And I'm looking at the Shopify checkout page. And then it dawns on me. I bet, right? Okay, let me take one step back here. Two steps back. In my e-commerce business, the one that sold physical products that got me into the e-commerce world, I was the person responsible for conversion rate optimization. Okay, so I got really good at understanding conversion and what you can do to impact conversion. Everything from the button color to the words to the trust symbols to everything else. So I'm looking at this with an expert view to conversion. And I'm looking at the Shopify checkout and I know the context is that this company, this platform's taking off. This is the hottest thing in e-commerce. And yet I look at their checkout page and I think to myself, this thing sucks. It's three pages instead of one. Now maybe on mobile three is better because it's all within the same view. Back then on a desktop, you just want a one page checkout. Well, you, every time you force people to go to another step, you lose people. You can't do anything to it. 
You can barely even upload a logo. You can't change colors. You can't optimize. You can't add trust symbols. You can't change any of the warnings if you get something. You, it's not your checkout. It's not even on your domain. And I think to myself, damn, I bet the bigger opportunity is providing Shopify merchants with a better checkout page. And then that light bulb goes off and I can't extinguish that light bulb. That thing is glowing every day I go to work on my cart abandonment app. I'm thinking, hold on a second. I think that's just a much bigger opportunity. Eventually I bring that to my co-founder, Ben, and our two engineers, Rock and Jan. It's just four of us now. And I go, guys, I got a, I got a crazy idea. I think, I think we got to build a new product. And they're like, dude, we have 100K in the bank. We have four people. We're making like $11,000 a month. Are you sure that's what you want to do? And we kind of sat on it and debated it for a few weeks. And eventually it was, yeah, that's what we got to do. So that is what led into the Carthook checkout product. And Shopify didn't want anyone to do that. They didn't want you in their platform at all, right? I didn't know that at the time. I didn't oh, know you that didn't. At the time. You just no. assumed, hey, look, they don't care. In fact, did you even think that you would be in their app store? I, we took bets on how many downloads we would get in the first week. <laughs> oh, wow. Right. Okay. Yeah. So okay. Let, me, let me get into it, right? So here's what happens. We start getting serious about the idea. And I, I basically mapped out, here is what I think the market wants. If there's any talent I have in entrepreneurship, it is identifying that. I am horrible at my to-do list. I am horrible at time management. I guess I'm decent at fundraising. I'm basically bad at everything. I don't know how to code, but I, I get a sense of what the market wants, and that is my thing. That's my superpower. So I said, we need a one-page checkout that's fully customizable. It's basically the opposite of what Shopify offers, a three-page checkout that you can't customize at all. So we start working on that, and at some point, you know, I get the same thoughts as you do. Is Shopify going to be okay with this? We look at their terms of service. No, they're not okay with it. But mm, who, who are we if not people who ignore those things? Right. right? <laughs> now, I like to come off like I'm risk-loving, but I'm a little bit conservative at the same time. It might be the immigrant thing. Um, so I start reaching out to people at Shopify because I'm poking. I, say, I, I, I want permission. I, I, want, I want to understand what the risk is. Eventually, I find like a developer advocate at Shopify, and he's like, damn, that's a great idea. You can't do that right now. However, we are about to release a checkout API, and what that would do is it allow you to build your product idea, but use Shopify's checkout API to ensure that Shopify receives the payment revenue. And if you do that, you're good. So I say, okay, that, that, that's legit, right? They, they weren't public at this time, but it was obvious that they were making money off payment processing and you don't want to poke a bear in its business model, right? That's the spot. So I said, guys, now, now we're adding inside information into the mix. We got it. We got to go. So we start working with this developer advocate and a few other people on Shopify's team about how to build this. We work on it for months. And then it's the, you know, it's submit to the app store. And then it is the, the, the eve, the night before we think this thing's going to get published in the app store and we're taking bets. How many downloads is this thing going to get in the first 24 hours, right? There was nothing like it. It would have shocked the entire ecosystem because everyone wanted it and everyone was complaining about it and Twitter and support threads and everything else. And we were, we were going to come out with the product that the market wanted most. So... Obviously, it didn't turn out that way. What happened was, on the day it was supposed to be released, we get an email. Real short. Sorry, guys. Can't do it. Uh, uh, can't, can't release this. Uh, thanks very much. Bye. Send. From the developer advocate? No, from someone else. Okay. And I'm like, I'm destroyed. I remember the moment because, you know, those like emotional moments in your life, like the adrenaline hits and it's like a scar because your, your psyche is basically telling you avoid this at all costs. So let's, let's leave a scar here. So we remember this. Yeah. So I remember, I remember getting the email and then walking outside my house in Portland. And I just remember thinking, I just lost everything. I just took this huge risk. I tried to mitigate it, but with this information and 
I screwed it up and I lost my money. I lost my friend's money. How am I going to explain? What, what am I going to do, basically? So I'm in a depression for a few days. And then I go to the grocery store. I remember the moment. I look at my phone and I see someone send me a screenshot and say, check this out. And it is a screenshot of a message board that's well known in the e-commerce world. And it is Ezra Firestone, who's a great guy, leaving a screenshot of his new checkout app that's about to be released by Shopify. And aren't you so excited to get on the waiting list? Released by Shopify? No, released by him, by Ezra. By him on Shopify. So they're, yep. they're not giving him permission either, but he has the same idea as you. Oh, no. He is... Oh, no. He, he got permission. So they did give him permission for the same thing, but not you? Because they were friends. Wow. Okay. okay. So first I go inverted into anger world. And then when I come out of it, I say, oh, my God, this is an opportunity. This is our chance. So Ezra rightfully was close with the guys at Shopify because he switched his affiliate business from promoting big commerce to promoting Shopify and became one of their biggest affiliates for years. So he rightfully earned his respect from the people at Shopify because he was a critical part of their business. However, I'm uninterested in being treated differently than someone else just because you, you're, you're friendly. And so I saw it as an opportunity. So I go home. And if there's, if there's maybe another talent I have in entrepreneurship, it's writing emails that get people to do what I want them to do. <laughs> a key, key skill these days. So I write the most important email of my career up until that point to Toby, Harley, the developer advocate, like everyone that I've worked with at Shopify, basically saying, you know, this aggression will not stand. Like there's the no way I'm – ex- yeah, yeah, everyone, the CEO, COO, everyone I worked with and basically put it all out there. There is no way I'm going to accept our app being treated differently than Ezra's. So you need to fix this. It was wordier and more convincing than that, but that, that was the gist. And that kicked off a, an argument inside of Shopify and what to do with a third-party checkout. The conclusion at the end of the day, partly to their credit, I have to admit, they eventually came back to us and said two things. Number one, you can do it. Number two, you can't be in the app store. Number three, I guess three things. Number three, you have to not use our checkout API. You have to do the payment processing yourself. I was very confused, but I will take that as a yes. The strange thing about it is that they were specifically telling us, take money away from our platform. You can run your own checkout, but don't use our checkout API. Don't process payments through us. You process the payments yourselves, which was very strange to us, but we will take it as long as we can just continue on and not have this thing totally fall apart. If I'm understanding right, the that is a huge upside because now you can even keep the processing fee that would ordinarily go to them. You're not just a software vendor. And the downside of that is you're not in the app store, which is where you would get the, the majority of your customers and, and recognition and, and, uh, and social proof through all the, the ratings yes. there. But okay. that, that's a compromise you have to take in our position. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I get it. Yeah. So I basically say, got it. Thanks. And then go silent. I didn't email them. I didn't talk to them until we got to $100 million in processing. <laughs> wow, okay. Yep. So I believe they assumed we would just kind of go away and die because we were some random software company that no one's ever heard of. We had no VC backing. We have no network. And we can't be in the app store. It was a safe assumption on their part. But they were wrong. <laughs> How did you grow it to that? You know what? Let me just say quickly, yeah. anyone out there who needs a developer, I usually do a longer ad. I should tell you, Lemon.io, phenomenal place to get great developers from parts of the world, but they don't usually get paid that well, but they are killer, good, and effective. They will match you with those people. And because they're not in parts of the world where Jordan and I and you, if you're listening to me, chances are live, you get to pay them less and they get to be happy because it's still higher than they would earn locally. And they get to stay where they love instead of traveling to San Francisco where Jordan and I both decided we don't want to live. So those benefits and so many more are available to you if you're a regular customer of Lemon. If you want even more, use my URL. I will get credit for sending you over, and in return, you're going to get an even lower price than they give everyone else. Go to lemon.io slash Mixergy, lemon.io slash Mixergy. 
How, how did you get to such a big user base? Okay, awesome. I, and I, I wish Lemon.io existed back when I started <laughs> because that was the hardest, scariest part of the whole thing. Like, how am I going to convince someone to build this? So once we had a one-page checkout that was customizable, we started listening to merchants. We would, I, you know, I did what I needed to do. I'd go into the Facebook groups and drop shipping was blowing up and there was something very specific happening in the market. ClickFunnels was taking off, right? In its heyday, ClickFunnels, extremely successful company, amazing marketing, ridiculous community building, a, a lot to learn from that company. What, what happened was ClickFunnels was built for digital products, selling courses, selling webinars, selling coaching and consulting and so on. People were using ClickFunnels to sell physical products. A lot of that was because their founder, Russell Brunson, was showing how he did it. He was doing he was selling his own book at free plus free shipping plus and handling, shipping. which is essentially yes. selling it. Right. That's it's right. So he, okay. The issue is ClickFunnels had no concept inside of their database, inside of their app and their admin of the things that you need as a merchant to sell physical products, shipping, taxes, order fulfillment, order management, re all that didn't really exist in ClickFunnels back then. So you had people who were becoming successful in selling physical products, but they were on a platform that was not built for it. So many of them were moving over to Shopify. When they did that, they lost one of the most critical things that ClickFunnels offers called post-purchase upsells. One-click upsells, post-purchase offers. And they're huge on that. They have all these different ways to do post-purchase upsells and even in-purchase upsell, all that stuff. Okay, so mm -hmm. you're saying if somebody tried to sell a physical product, all that was gone. Well, if they moved over to Shopify, all of it was gone. So you had, you had a, a bad bargain to make as yep. an entrepreneur. You could stay on ClickFunnels, sell your physical products with post-purchase upsells the way you want, and then deal with the CSV exports and uploading it to ShipStation and, and tearing your hair out that way. Or you can move over to Shopify with a much better e-commerce management platform, but then you lost all the marketing power of being able to sell someone something for $5 and then offer them something for $50 that they could very easily buy within the same transaction. Okay. I see that. Okay. All right. I thought so, they were going to send people just to Shopify for the checkout. You're saying, no, they were going to have to give up everything and switch to Shopify or stick with, uh, stick with ClickFunnels. That wasn't the bargain they wanted. And so in you walk in and you say what? And we say, we have a one-click checkout, excuse me, a one-page checkout. We have customization. And now, thanks to Shopify's point of view on this, we are doing the payment processing. And along with the payment processing comes something very important, the payment token. And the payment token is what's required in order to have post-purchase upsells. To charge the card multiple times inside of the same transaction, you need to be the holder of the payment token. So here we are in the perfect position to add one more feature, post-purchase upsells, into our checkout. And I went deep enough into ClickFunnels land and the ClickFunnels Facebook group and messaged people and became friends with them and got them on calls that I was convinced this is it. What we need to build is a bridge between a ClickFunnels landing page that could then go over to the Carthook checkout Carthook post-purchase upsells, Carthook thank you page, and then we would send the order information into the Shopify backend so they could manage it the way they want. Not bad. Wow, yeah, and now you're also tapping into their spirit of upsell, side sell, whatever yes. sell that I can't ever get the names right of. Yes. yes. Got yes. it, and they're all informing the product, helping you get more customers, but also helping you get a product that has the digital marketers you know, ability to get more sales out of a customer. That's right. But for and, physical yeah, products now. For physical products. Right. This is well, amazing. Was, okay. Yeah. And, and that was the right product at the right time. Okay. And we launched it. And from day one, we're absolutely overwhelmed with demand. Absolutely overwhelmed. We, we, we launched it for 99 bucks a month in a pretty simple landing page. And we got hundreds of signups. And the truth was the product was not ready, but we want to, obviously you launch early. So we launch and are immediately overwhelmed. And then immediately people are like, yo, this is a great product, but it doesn't have this and it's not quite working. What right. do I do next? So we, we, we decide, yo, we got to slow this thing down. So first thing we do is we change the price from hundred bucks a month to 300 bucks a month. And what happens? Nothing. Demand stays wow. exactly the same. 
Wow. So all of a sudden we've realized, oh, we're onto something much bigger than we thought and we're wrong on the pricing. And now what we need to do is get serious about this. And what that meant was we stopped signups. We forced a demo. You cannot sign up for the product with like your own account. You got to talk to us first. So we really learned because. what we're talking about. We had to slow Why? it down. We, 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 couldn't, we couldn't handle 300 you know, people in a week because the product was, was barely ready for anything. Because you're saying if you had 300 people sign up in a week, it would be 300 people who were disappointed. And you're saying you'd rather have fewer people disappointed and learn from them and get to them, gotcha, and have them feel more connected to your roadmap and trust you. Wow. Because you can wreck your reputation. Right. Right. Because we were looking at the Facebook groups and people like, oh, my God, this new thing, card hook, you have to look at this. And so we realized we were onto something, but we didn't want to ruin the reputation of the product and ourselves. So we slowed everything down into demos. And then I put my demo head on. I probably did 20 demos a week for six months straight. But we learned everything and got to know everyone. And the challenging thing was that the product was genuinely not able to satisfy what people needed. We knew what we needed to build, but we did not understand the nature of a checkout product and what that entails. It is not like other products where... You apologize if something goes wrong and the emails don't go out for a few hours and then it kind of catches up and no big deal. If you have do anything wrong at all, you're costing people money. So that impacts the deployment process, the QA process, the coding. Every, it affects everything, which we now know, you know six years later. But what kept us going was the enthusiasm. People would come onto a demo with me and they would it would blow their mind. They would be like, hold on, I'm getting my friend to join this Zoom. And they would call their friend and say, Joe, you, you have to get on the Zoom right now. I'm sending you the link. You, you will not believe this. So when you get that kind of a reaction to showing your product, you know you're onto something. But it was a very strange year of amazing growth. We did 100 million in processing the first year, but in reality, I called it a conveyor belt of torture. People would come into the product, use it, get chopped to bits by our mistakes and bugs, and then come out the other end bleeding and begging for mercy and saying, I love you guys, but I cannot use it. Let me know when it's ready, Uh, which was very painful. It was product market fit without quite being able to satisfy it. Without the product. It was like idea market fit, but not the product. Okay, fine. (laughs) Okay. And so then how'd you get the product up to speed? You mentioned earlier that getting uh, developers was one of the biggest pain points. How did you yes. get over it? So we got lucky in the first developer hire that we made was someone named Rock from Slovenia. And Rock is now my co-founder at Rally and my very good friend. So you, you can kind of tell how lucky we got in both the quality of person and work. Um, at some point, we came to the conclusion that fixing this current product is not going to work. We have to start from scratch. We got to build version two. And that's what he did. He basically took it upon himself. All right, I'm, I'm going into the lab. I'll see you guys in six weeks with version two. And it really hit like a maximum amount of pressure where there were so many people who wanted to use the product, so many people that were currently using the product and, and complaining, but hoping it would get better. It was really like, if version two comes out and it's good, we are off to the races. And if it's not good, this might just all fall apart. And he he did it. He showed up and hit it out of the park and version two just satisfied people and was much more reliable and much more effective. And from that moving forward, it was just an absolute boom off to the races. The next year we did 200 million, then 400, then 800 million. And in total, the process, the product process, $2.8 billion in revenue. Okay. Let me pause now and ask you, what does it say for your co-founder if this guy, Rock, is able to come in and in a few weeks create a product that just works when your co-founder wasn't able to do it, having been intimately involved in every part of the business up until that point? Sure. Well, let's, uh, okay, let me, let me do some clarification here. Charlie, my family friend who built the original version of the product, is a developer. He built the original cart abandonment app. And then got his dream job offer in San Francisco when the company was doing like 800 bucks a month. And I was like, Charlie, you have to take that job. And then I ran it by myself for a while until I met my new co-founder, Ben. And he joined and he's a product manager. He's not uh, not a developer. So it was never up to Ben to build the original uh, checkout product. 
that's what we hired Rock for. We worked with agencies. We tried a bunch of different things until we until we found Rock. So it didn't say anything about Ben in that way. Uh, it was just the truth of the matter. This is the developer that we hired, and and, and he did a great job on it. Um, yes. So that all all this stuff is more more nuanced than than it sounds, right? Okay. All right. You did eventually part ways with your co-founder. Yeah. Buyout. Uh, yeah. In in if you think about that year of tremendous growth and at the same time huge amount of lost opportunity and frustration and pain and i was the person responsible for marketing and my co-founder was the one responsible for the product and that included the tech and in that difficult time we became strained and if i'm being totally honest about it at that point in time, as a founder and CEO, I did not have the skill set to make it better, to figure out what needed to happen, what we needed to do, what people to bring in, what processes to change. And I came to a point where I did not know how to make it better other than letting him go. And that was rough. And, you know, it's just one of those moments in your career that you look back on. You're not sure if you made the right decision. You're not sure if you regret it. You're not sure if you're smart for it. It's just unclear. It was a very painful thing because I care about him a lot. He's a great person and colleague. Uh, he's off doing great things on his own. But that's that's what I did. Sometimes you just kind of do what you think is right and what you think needs to be done. You know what? One of the things that I had seen in San Francisco a lot of was this type of situation with co-founders. And it is really tough. And uh, the good ones eventually will make that break because it's hard. It's hard from a lot of different directions. Personal, emotional is the hardest, but also how do you extricate someone from a cap table if you need to, or just make sure that they, they, they don't come back at you and take over the company mm -hmm. and then logging them out of everything and finding out what they had uh, power over that they were working on. That's legitimate that you can't anyway, all that. And they do it. And I respect them because they did the hard, one of the hardest things that they had to do. And then I remember also looking at them saying, if that person who you co-founded this is expendable, at, if it means that this vision can't come to life, I as a friend am clearly expendable. And it was both <laughs> scary and at the same time a, a moment of respect. And it, it it's just is what it is. Yeah. It was, like you said, it was emotionally painful. It was painful for the business. It was a difficult thing, and and I did it and had to move forward. Uh, and it, it made things more complicated, for sure. Uh, but we just kept going. And Seems to have done well. He's still in the e-commerce software oh, space, yeah, as far as I know, right? Yeah. Okay. And, and, so, and what, ha what happened uh, to us, we, we learned a lot along the way on, on how to sell this thing. You know what I really learned along the way when I look back on it? I learned how to not assume that everyone's advice and the best practices and the things that everyone tells you to do, those aren't always the right thing to do for your situation and your business. And there comes a point in time where you have to take control and do what you truly think is right. So we did a lot of things that ended up being counterintuitive. Like at some point when the product was better, we opened up free trials. We were getting three to 400 free trials a month for a $300 a month product. Ostensibly the dream, right? 100K plus in potential MRR signing up every month with their credit card in order to get to the product. Sounds amazing. It was a mess. It was a washing machine of 15% in monthly churn. And so I, what I did was I had a conversation with Shauna who was running our support at that time. And I said, Shauna, what percentage of the time spent by the people in support and success is spent on people that don't become good paying customers? And she said, at least 50%. And I, I walked away from that and it took a walk around the block. And I said, that is a disaster and I'm responsible for it. I'm letting my employees be made miserable by people who are not going to become paying customers. And even worse than that, the people who are great paying customers are getting the least amount of attention because we, we don't have the time. We don't have the bandwidth to, to work with them and treat them the right way. So we made the decision to do two things at the same time. 
we shut off free trials entirely and went back to forcing a demo. And we raised prices from 300 bucks a month to 500 bucks a month and added a 50 basis point transaction fee of a half a percent transaction fee. A huge jack up in the prices and cutting off free trials. So reducing the number of people that came into the product. Risky. And, and what happened to revenue from that? First month or two, everything plummets. So because the churn continues from the previous months, but you're not bringing in nearly as many people. So revenue dropped for the first time. I think we were about at about $200,000 a month at that point in time. 150, 180, 200K a month, something like that. And, and it takes about three months and then everything stabilizes. And then it's like, that happened in July. By September, churn is at like 3% for the month. And the people that have come in that are ending their trials after going through demo with the higher price, they're starting to kick in and we start to level off. And then it starts to go up a little bit. And then a little bit. And then by the end of that year, December of 2019, we are at about 225 to 250K a month and at like 1% monthly churn. So I look back at, at that period and I think, okay, we took this crazy risk and it worked. The company is quieter, healthier. The best customers have the most attention. Mission accomplished. Okay. At some point, before I get to some point, I should say this interview is sponsored by Origami. If you are at all curious about how decentralized autonomous organizations work, then why? I thought everyone had moved on past it because they all thought that this was crypto and we're done with crypto. But I'm glad to hear it because I'll tell you, this is not crypto thing, even though it obviously uses the blockchain. What it is, is a way to say to a community of people, hey, you know what? Let's all work together towards the same goal. I will give every one of you tokens so that you have some kind of um, currency to use for voting and we'll all work towards the goal. And that vote goal has been in examples that I've had real estate. I've talked to people. I've talked to people who've done it for investing and so on. And since we're all working together, instead of saying thank you for helping out the organization, we could say, well, thank you. And here's some tokens to give you more voting power in the organization. It basically is a new form of organization where communities as uh, communities of customers, communities of uh, real estate users, communities of any kind can come together and make sure that everybody gets to support each other and every member gets uh, value for the work that they've done. All right, it's kind of a mouthful. I do a whole series of interviews where you can hear the stories behind this and see what's working and frankly also what's not. Go check it out at joinorigami.com slash podcast, joinorigami.com slash podcast. For, for the record, I'm a huge fan of that concept and I think it is inevitable. Why? Why? What is it? Yeah, what is it that you get excited about there? Maybe we're skipping ahead a little bit, but that's actually the original vision of Rally, to build an e-commerce platform that shares ownership with the merchants that process revenue through the checkout. And do you do that? Not yet. But the market the has basically eliminated that as an option between the market and the SEC. It is no, it is not currently an option, but I think that is an inevitability in business models on the internet. And it's just a matter of time until we get some clarity from the SEC and the market kind of comes around on a lot of these concepts. And a lot of the tech is buried where it should be, where the tech is, and the concepts right. are brought out to you know normal language and, and, and concepts. That yeah, it shouldn't be about blockchain and even, frankly, tokens maybe you can use, but not much more than that. Like I think about an example like me and Zapier. I love Zapier. I was their first customer. I dealt with small issues that they had there, right? Mm -hmm. There's no upside for me other than bragging rights, which is why you might hear me talk about it quite a bit, right? A lot of people are in that situation where they take a risk on a company they believe in and their biggest upside is I got to suffer first because I believed in this. And right. so they talk about it a lot because that's the only upside that you get, that you look smart for having used it. It would be nice if they said at the early days, look, we're going to give you some tokens here. And in return, every time you help us, we'll give you a little bit more tokens in this thing that will have at least governance so that I can come back and say, I've been with you a long enough time. I've suffered enough that I can tell you with my tokens, I should have more voting right here than somebody who just joined up. And maybe down the road, a little bit of revenue sharing, maybe down the road, mm -hmm. um, maybe down the road, a little bit of, of equity sharing. And there's an organization that just done this through Origami. Origami took a company called Collabland. Collabland is used to log into Discord servers. They basically say, here are the people who belong in the Discord server. Here are the people who don't. Collabland said, why are we the only ones deciding this? Why are we the only ones fighting to promote this? Let's give all of our members tokens. We'll convert into a DAO. And now every member has an incentive to go to every Discord server that they're on mm -hmm. and go, hey, 
use Collabland or to come back to Collabland and say, hey, guys, you're being stupid and I'm not going to sit back and switch over to this other gating software. I'm going to help you recognize that you're making a mistake so that you could improve and, and my tokens become more valuable. Anyway, yeah. I can go on for, for yeah, about this. Let's come back. So, so can I. <laughs> I. I think that is actually uh, the slingshot uh, for modern day Davids against the internet Goliaths. I think I just uh, butchered a few analogies. But no, that, you're right. Yeah. That is what can be used against established incumbents that can't do it. Right? So if I want to take on Shopify, I, I'm not going to out-Shopify Shopify. Right? They're already public. They're mm -hmm. already tremendous. They have huge resources. The right way to do it is to start an e-commerce platform that provides merchants their ownership uh, based on the success of the merchant and their contribution to the platform. So that it's like making a pitch to a merchant that says, it's like getting into Shopify early, but instead of just the founders and employees getting rich, you, the right. customer, participate in the upside as you should. So I, right. I think that concept and is inevitable. And we keep talking about the revenue because revenue and equity are important. I think it's equally important for both sides to give the people who are early on, who get tokens, an incentive to promote the business mm -hmm. and an incentive to also... Um, to tell the business when they're doing wrong. And, and I'll give you an example of someone uh, of someone who's getting help from their community this way. Y Combinator founders created Orange. Orange is a decentralized autonomous organization of these uh, YC founders who are investing in new companies. One of them contacted me. He starts asking me questions about this company. I go, why are you asking questions? What's your connection to it? He goes, I was assigned in the Dow to go research this company okay. because this company is in real estate and I, as a Y Combinator founder, raise money to invest in a real estate startup and to build it up. So they assigned it to me. Now think about that. They have over a thousand people like this guy, Elson, who who know their area of the world really well, who now have an incentive to go and deep dive into the company that, that, that they're considering investing in. You get some of that in VC firms, but mostly it's outsourced hiring, or they say we're focusing on just the five things that we know really well. Here, they could expand beyond and go deep dive into everything. And once they get funding, I've seen this. A team of people who are who are in the Dow say we better go and promote them. Little things like tweets, introductions, parties, whatever it is, because we we help them. We get not just back uh, back our backs padded, but we get more tokens for mm -hmm. anyway. All right, yep. let's come back to this story. Yeah, coming back to to Cart Hook, so we can close it out and come to rally. Yeah. At some point, Shopify said this thing that we did. We're not doing it anymore. Yep, We're not right. allowing outsiders to kind of be half in, half out. We got to have the whole platform organized. That's what right. did that sound like when it came to you and how did that impact the business? Okay. So this is what I think of as a guillotine that hung over our heads the entire time. And the, the, the odd part of the experience is that the more successful the business became, right? Think about years of work, years of grinding, years of fail this, fail that, you finally hit onto something. You finally hit product market fit and you are one of the lucky people whose company just explodes, right? We raised another few bucks. We ended up raising like 500K and then this thing took off on us and hits millions in ARR, profitability, and we are, we are on our way to the dream. And this guillotine just kind of hanging out over you it made for a very strange experience that the more successful it got, the scarier it got because you had more to lose. And I, I, there, were, there were four or five times throughout the years that something would come up. Someone would send me a tweet. Someone would send me an email. Someone would send me a screenshot, a text message that made me think, it's here. It's done. It's over. I remember once I dropped my kid off at nursery school and I got a message while parked after dropping the kid off. And the ride from the nursery school to my office in, in Portland, I basically just planned out, all right, here's how I have to tell everyone that they're fired. And here's, you know, here's what I need to do today if this really happens the way I think it's going to happen. It didn't quite happen that dramatically. But at some point when we got to about $100 million in monthly processing, we're at over a billion dollars in GMV run rate, Shopify finally comes to us and other third-party checkouts and says, it's, it's over. It's time to, to come in and sign an agreement with us and make, make the changes that we need you to make. 
And what did that do to the business? I mean, I have it here in my notes. I don't know how much. Um, I shouldn't say it. You should say what happened. Yeah. So they were smart about it. They knew that if you just cut an API, you're going to have, you don't care about the software company. At least they don't care about the software company. But you have hundreds of merchants that are going to be very upset. And that, if you're in a platform environment and you're, you are a complement, let's say you're an app on a platform, your shield is your customers. Because the platform might not care about you, but they care about their customers. And our shield was pretty good because we had some big, we had native deodorant and like these big merchants. And so they didn't just cut off our API access. They basically said, what you have to do is give us a very large share of your revenue, uh, which was an outrageous amount that I told them absolutely no way. So we ended up in this very scary standoff for a while. Eventually, we compromised on a more reasonable number. And then what they did is they cut off our ability to add new merchants. And you know software, Andrew. What happens to a software company that can't add new customers? It dies a slow death. And so as soon as that happened, I understood a few things. One, I got to sign this deal. It's the only way to protect shareholder value, protect the team, the employees, the rev. Just it's it would be irresponsible of me to just say, screw it. I'm not signing it. We'll take our chances. The other thing I knew was that I was out of there. I don't want anything to do with Shopify. I have no interest in playing ball according to their rules. This is not a winning game for me and I think for others also. And so when I signed that agreement, that was basically me signing the end of my portion of the card hook journey. And so I did the responsible thing. We built a team. We built the type of post-purchase upsell app that is acceptable to them, that works with their checkout, that you can go off and see in the app store right now. Uh, it's being operated by the company that that bought it from us. And then I had to figure out a way out of that situation. So I went to our investors and I said, here's the deal. It was a hell of a ride. Thank you for the support. You saw our, our performance speaks for itself. It's now time for me to move forward in my career out of this situation. So I'm going to start a new company called Rally, where we're going to offer the rest of the internet, our checkout um, know-how, and let's figure out a way to do that amicably and fairly and in a way that, that everyone wins. Okay. And I know that we can't get into the details of what that agreement was, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the details I, I can't share, but the parameters, right? What's the right thing to do in that situation? It's to give the Kartok shareholders a, a piece of rally. And that, that's what we did. In addition to what happened with the sale? Yeah, that's right. Of Everyone kept okay. their equity. And I said, I, I talked to some investors that are willing to back us and to get this company off the ground. And I will share a portion of the upside with everyone on the cart hook cap table. And that, that, that was the fair thing to do. Okay. So then you go to create rally. And now when you pitched it to me, when you told me about it, you said, there's a new way of doing e-commerce. It's headless. It's basically a database of information that then plugs into whatever front end website design people want. And then the rest of the tools just get added on like a shopping cart and everything else, right? And so to me, that seems very decentralized. seems very fair. You don't like your shopping cart. You don't have to count on whatever web builder you're using to say it's okay. But it also seems to me like you, you don't now have a home base of people who are all working together. You don't have a home base of people who are going to promote you. You don't have, a, you don't have any of that, right, that you had with Shopify. That, that's right. Uh, what happened in e-commerce and what was um, expected to happen, it hasn't quite turned out exactly what people expected. But back then, when I started the company, what was starting to happen is a natural unbundling. Right? So the internet and parts of the internet go through these bundling and unbundling cycles. Uh, at first, things start off very decentralized, and then AOL comes in and bundles everything, and it works out better. And then it starts to drift out into these different pieces. In e-commerce, Shopify did an incredible job of bundling the stack to make it easier to get your shopping uh, site online. And that bundle included the front end, which is the storefront where shoppers interact and add things to their cart and click buttons. 
and the checkout, that's the second piece where the payments happen. And the third piece is the back end where the order management happens. Shopify did an incredible job of doing that and they were rewarded for doing a great job at that. What was starting to happen is as these merchants got more sophisticated, they started to want to stretch out beyond this very tightly bundled package. They wanted to start using new tools on the front end and new tools on the back end. And that's, you know, that turned into the app ecosystem on the back end. So you don't have to use Shopify's email. You could use Klaviyo. You don't have to use uh, Shopify payments. You could use Braintree. You don't have to use. So it started to become more unbundled. And we saw that trend happening. And with our checkout experience and expertise, we identified that the most valuable part of that new ecosystem where a merchant could pick and choose the best front end, the best back end, the best this, the most valuable part of that ecosystem was the transaction layer. And our experience with the checkout was perfect for it. And it was one of these moments of, well, something bad just happened. We just built this great company and it was about to shoot to the moon. And I was going to retire and, you know, and, and then it didn't work out that way. And we, we got this new lease on life. We got this new opportunity because of the bad experience. We now are in a better position than we could have expected. I, I firmly believe the Shopify ecosystem is going to create very few big outcomes. Clavio, PostScript, a few others. But generally speaking, I don't think it's, it's great for small entrepreneurs that want to just do things on their own. Maybe they want to bootstrap. But, but it, it puts a lid on the potential of other software companies uh, because of the nature of the platform and the competition there and the API set and the platform controlling it. Yeah, they intentionally, uh, you mentioned earlier that Cart Hook is in the App Store and of course it's in the App Store. And if I scroll a little bit, I see a few other products that do the exact same thing like that they're promoting dozens. because what they're, they have no incentive to let you be the, the giant in their platform. Right. I they, know you've got to go right now, right? Absolutely. They, they do not want anyone to be the giant. They, they want to be in control. And every once in a while, someone gets away from them like a Clavio and, and they can't control them. What about this then? What do you do then to get new customers when people are moving to Shopify? And Shopify is not just doing the stack that you talked about. They're also getting into the marketing side of it where they're partnering with Instagram, partnering mm -hmm. with uh, with YouTube. And YouTube is not saying we're going to allow you to sell from Shopify and a million different platforms that we don't know. We're saying They're saying just Shopify. Mm -hmm. And so that just makes it a bigger and bigger dominant player. Yes. But anytime you have a platform with a base that's so wide, right? A million plus shops, it is inevitable that a portion of that customer base is unhappy. And that's what creates the opportunity for the next platform to be built, right? There is a fantastic article that talks about a lot of these concepts, including crypto, called Why Decentralization Matters by Chris Dixon. And it talks about the platform life cycle that goes from cooperation to competition with both its customers and its ecosystem. And this thing happens over and over and over again. It happens with Google, happens with Twitter, it happens with Shopify, it happens with any other platform. You become dominant, you start to extract, you start to turn people off, you lose the glow of you know arming the rebels, you're such a nice group of guys, and then it turns into this, how, how do we get out of this? How do we form a new thing? And so Rally was intended to be the checkout layer of the new ecosystem happening in e-commerce, whether you call it headless or composable, that vision has been delayed by the economic issues over the last few years. The, right, the, the boom's over, and now replatforming and spending a bunch of money and the optimism in e-commerce is greatly mm -hmm. diminished. Wait, so you're building up today so that when things get so big that even a 10% or 2% increase in sales is significant and people have the team and the bandwidth to, to make the switch, yeah, well, the rally will be there? We never put ourselves in a position to depend on that uh, headless ecosystem. I say delay specifically because it is inevitable that it happens. It's just not happening now or yet. What rally does right now is it goes off and finds existing merchants who already have a business up and running on Salesforce, Commerce Cloud, or Commerce Tools, or something else, and it improves their checkout experience. And it's almost happening in parts. So these large online retailers, they want to modernize. And where should they modernize first? At the thing that makes the most difference in revenue, which is the front end and the checkout. So right now, we're going and working with existing enterprise merchants 
to improve their checkout experience. And as we do that more, we build up the rally pay vault of shoppers uh, and our capability and basically bide our time as this new ecosystem forms. And in the future, you see a world where there are more and more ways for people to buy, maybe something that Shopify hadn't considered, like an open AI type shopping That's experience. Right. If somebody builds a front end, that person's going to say, I could build a shopping cart experience, or I could just let Rally handle that. And they'll, or maybe they won't even have the opportunity to say, I could do this or that. The market will just say, I want, I want to pick my own shopping cart. Yes, it, it has the elements of becoming a winner take all model the the checkout because what we've done is built a shop pay like vault feature so when you go through our checkout once when you come back to any of our checkouts you can buy very easily right you recognize through the network but it's not only one platform in shopify and one payment processor in shopify payments it works across the web regardless of platform or payment processor so it's like Does that matter open... in a world with with Apple Pay and Google Pay? I mean, my credit card is recognized everywhere anyway, and so is my name, et cetera. Yes. So we integrate with Apple Pay and Google Pay because we should, because it should be up to the merchant. <clears throat> it should be up to the merchant which payment methods they offer their shoppers. However, it's still true that over 50% of people go through the guest checkout and fill out their first name, last name, city, state, zip, and credit card info. And for those people, we effectively have a net that catches them so that they only have to do that once. And then next time they come back, as soon as they type their email address in, they're recognized. If they're cookie, they just go to the last step. If not, they get SMS, and then we pull all of their information from the vault. Okay, and Apple is never going to have an offer expires in 57 seconds, 56, 55, et cetera, type of thing that adds a level of urgency or a level of upsell, all they want to do is do the credit card processing bit of it. And the rest is something that you are going to specialize in to allow someone to, to allow a store owner to have all those features that you've known. And then the credit card ha gets handled by Amazon or typed in. That's, that's right. So we integrate with everyone in the alternative payment method space, right? Affirm and Apple Pay and Afterpay and Stripe, and Braintree, and, and everyone, because we are the underlying checkout. We're like the marketing layer that sits on the web that makes the purchasing process better, but we're not doing, we're not, we're not a Stripe competitor. We're not doing the payment processing. We're not an Apple Pay competitor. We just integrate with all of them. All right. The website for anyone who wants to check it out is rallyon.com. Nice design. You keep upgrading your design personally, Jordan. Thanks, Ben. This looks good. All right, thanks for doing this. I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays. Actually, I don't even have to look forward to it. You're so freaking good with those investor updates. <laughs> Sometimes I think those are those are the substack of the really successful people where the companies you invest in, you put a little bit of money in, and then you end up getting deep insights from company founders in their in their uh, email investor updates and in conversations. I, I have this month's open in my inbox right now in the compose window, so you'll get one soon. Uh, thank okay. you so much for having me on. It was a great trip down memory lane. I hope people learn from it and, and enjoy the story. All right. It's Rally, rallyon.com. Bye, everyone.